open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. As we've traveled through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen to this point a number of identities of who Christ is. And as we jump into as we jump into chapter 12, we're kind of picking up with a little bit of what Mark was talking about on Sunday. You remember the very last thing that he mentioned was in Mark chapter 11, where the scribes are coming to, and the Pharisees are coming to Jesus. The, the high priest, the, the chief elders of the temple, they're all coming to Jesus and they're asking him, by what authority are you doing these things? What are these things? Well, remember, he went in and he did this triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He came in riding on the, on the colt, fulfilling a prophecy of what the Messiah would do. He goes into the temple, he scopes it out, and then the next day, he goes into the temple and he begins to just overturn all of these tables of the money changers and clears out the temple and, and makes room for saying, this house, God's house, is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. There's supposed to be room in here for people to come and engage who God is. And they're saying, why are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority? Remember, he asked them, hey, who, whose authority did John have? You know, I'll answer your question if you'll tell me. Who gave John the Baptist authority? And of course, they just simply said, oh, we don't know. Now, certainly they knew, they, they talked amongst themselves, they battled it out, and they said, if we say that John's baptism, that his power came from heaven, well, then we're going to walk right into his trap. <laughs> and if, and if, we, if we say that it wasn't, then we're going to stir up the anger of the people because they all knew and believed that he was a prophet, that he came with the spirit of Elijah, that his baptism was, was from God. And so that's kind of the context of where we're at. And Jesus says, then I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from. But he spends all of chapter 12 talking about these two interweaving things that we're going to see. We've got a cycle that's coming through that's going to be authority, where he's going to give a parable to the chief elders, and we're going to see that there's this other thing as, as he begins to give these parables that is setting up this other thing of worship. So we've got worship, this theme that's running through chapter 12, and then we also have authority. So the first thing that he does is he begins to give, in, chap, in, in chapter 12, verse 1, he begins to give a parable. So let's pick it up. Jesus began teaching them with stories. A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. The owner sent another servant. But they insulted him and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed until there was only one left, his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner finally sent him thinking, 
Surely they will respect my son. But the tenant farmers said to one another, Here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? Jesus asked. I'll tell you. He will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. And what's their response? Verse 12, the religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. But they were very afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. What happens here is we've got these themes of of authority and worship. And so the first thing he addresses is, okay, guess what? I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you where my authority comes from. The vineyard, the vineyard is the nation of Israel. If you look at Isaiah chapter 5, you'll see this beautiful song that God writes through the prophet Isaiah of talking about how Israel is his vineyard and how he cares for it and how he nurtures it and that in all of that, it produced these wild grapes. Well, here he gives this picture of, of worship and, and authority. And the authority, the owner, the owner is God. And so we here have God is the owner. He is the owner. He is the creator. He is the one who established the vineyard. The worship, the worship comes from the fruits of the vineyard. And so we have on this side the fruits that are due God through the things that he set up. All right, I'm, I'm creating this. I'm establishing this. This is what I desire. This is what is going to bring you fulfillment. This is a purpose. The purpose of a vineyard is to produce grapes, right? So there's two themes that we're going to see that are running through this over and over again. And basically the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the, the chief elders, the high priests, they're sitting there and going, telling us we've got bad fruit. Let's, let's kill this guy. And Jesus, in his very parable, prophesies his own death before they even think it. He identifies and he says, they, the owner sends his son, and they kill him, and they throw him out of the vineyard. Maybe even planting the very idea in their heads. <laughs> wow. Jesus has some real, real chutzpah here. <laughs> If you, if you keep going in, in, in verse 13, he, say, he gives us another, another thing where the Pharisees come. He says, later, the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They're trying to trap him. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the ways of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, Why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin, and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, he asked, Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then Jesus said, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. His reply completely amazed them. And so again, this, the same exact thing. Whose authority do you have, Jesus? All right, let me tell you whose authority I have. Who, whose, whose image is on the coin? Caesar. Okay, well then give Caesar what belongs to him. Whose image is on you? Whose authority are you under? And so here in the authority, we have God as creator. 
He's the one we are made is in his image. And then on the fruit side, give to God what is due him. Render to God. Render to God what? Us. There's this idea of worship sometimes we think of, and worship is something that we, we go to do. I'm going to go to church and, and worship. And yet, over and over again in the scriptures, we read these phrases like in Colossians where Paul says, everything, let everything that you do, do as unto the Lord. Do it in the name of the Lord. Do it as he would do it. Everything you say, everything that you do, worship. Worship is really this idea of continuously flowing. And we look at God, we look at the creator, we look at the owner of the vineyard, we look at this unity within God and we see that he is self-existent. His communion is never broken. His communion, he's totally satisfied and healthy within himself. He existed in eternity before us and after us, so to speak. He always will be self-existent. He doesn't need our worship to be happy. And yet, what he's given us is this continual worship, this continual living out, this continual engaging with who he is that defines our purpose, that gives us the opportunity to engage him, worship him. So the fruit of, of worship uh, in this cycle is just simply every, every breath. You just simply write it that way, every breath. And he goes on and he continues engaging the religious leaders. This is kind of like Pastor Eric and I were talking about this earlier, and it's like, this is where Jesus, he just goes into the temple, and he's just like, bring it on. All right, this is like a cage match here. He's just, all right, I'm going to take on the, the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm going to take on, now he's getting ready to, to talk to the, to the Sadducees and all of these people. And, and the Pharisees, they're the ones, remember, they, they've, they're all about the things that they do, earning their righteousness. The Sadducees, they, they don't believe in a resurrection. And so we're going to see in just a couple minutes that Jesus begins to address that. In verse 18, he says, then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if, if a man dies, leaving a wife without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the name of the brother. Well, suppose there are seven brothers. Nice hypothetical situation. And suppose there's, there's seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without having children. So the second one married the widow, and he also died without children. Then the third married her, and this continued with all seven of them, and there were still no children. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Sounds pretty far-fetched. And Jesus goes, and he, he begins to address him. He says, I love this. Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the Scriptures. <laughs> A little blunt, just kind of straight to the point. Your mistake is that, is that you don't understand scriptures. And as I read that, I just, just kind of smacked me across the face. And so you're going, this is really a, a very key aspect to our faith. This is a very key aspect to the way that we do life. A lot of times I have my, my God in a box, and this is who I think he's supposed to be, and these are the things that I think he's supposed to do, and this is the way that I'm going to relate to him. And then I find when he doesn't do things my way, well, God, I don't understand you. I'm confused. I have unbelief, and God just simply says, don't you know the Scriptures? 
Don't, don't you know the promises? Don't you know the truth of who I am? And as I, as I began to kind of, at this point, I just kind of looked back on the chapter again. I'm like, all right, there's this, this owner, owner of this vineyard, and he goes in, and he's trying to get what is, what is his, what belongs to him. And he sends a servant, and the servant gets beat up, and the servant comes back empty-handed. And then more servants go, and they get, they get beaten, and some get killed, and then the son goes, and then he gets killed. And Who is Jesus? Who, who is God? Who is this God? Who is this owner who sends his servants to be beaten? Who is this God? Who, who is Jesus that sends his servants to be killed? Who is this Jesus who, who as the Son, humbly and willingly says, hey, I'll go. And I know the end result. I know that I'm going to be killed, but, but I'll go. God doesn't really fit in my box, does he? And, and, and I'm supposed to be his servant? Am I safe? Am I secure? Do I think that my relationship with God is, is going to bring me peace all the time? And joy all the time and, and satisfaction all the time? And my mind was reminded of, of Hebrews chapter 11. And in this wonderful chapter, there's all of these victories of peace of, of what people overcame with their faith, and then it, then it gets to uh, verse 35, and it says, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips, and others were chained in prisons, and some died by stoning, and some were sawed in half, and others were killed with a sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us, so that they would not reach perfection without us. Jesus is setting a new a new paradigm here. What authority do I have? I have all authority. It's all for me. Now, what would be the response if he just came out and just said that to them? Maybe they would have sought to kill him right at that very moment. Maybe that would have enraged them to the point of bringing his death sooner, if that were even possible. Maybe it would have brought them to a place of absolute rebellion and totally shutting off. And instead, he, he gives them a, a sideways view. He doesn't give them a direct answer. And yet, the Spirit of God speaks to them and they perceive he's speaking these things against us. He's trying to reach us. He's trying to, he's trying to change our minds. He's trying to offer us a way out. So in this, in this parable with the, with the religious leaders, the Sadducees, What's the point here? The point is that our hope has to be in something beyond this life. That God would give us the hope that we can overcome the circumstances so that when the job is bad and when the marriage is tough and when a child is sick and when all of the things around us seem not to be going the way that we desire them to, what, what do I have that keeps me going? 
is my hope in, well, it'll, it'll get better. That's my hope. It'll get better, sure. They'll get healed. Well, I just, I just one foot in front of the other, I just keep marching on, and, and one of these days, I'll get a better job. One of these days, it, it'll just change and go from bad to good. No, that's not what it's about at all. Saying it gives us a hope in the resurrection, a hope that, that gives us perseverance, that we, in these, in these things, we focus on the most important thing, our God-centeredness, our God-groundedness, our God-relatedness. That is the only permanent part of our life. It's the only thing in our life that is going to last forever. It is the only thing in our life that has no end. Everything else is going to pass. It's going to fail. Sadducees, they just didn't get that. So Jesus continues, your mistake is that you don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they'll be like the angels in heaven. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses in the story of the burning bush? And he begins to quote out of, uh, out of Exodus. Long after I, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he's the God of the living and not the dead. You've made a serious error. You've made a serious error. It's not about the things of this world. It's about the life that God gives. So one of the teachers of religious law, verse 28, was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus then sums up all of the law and the prophets. And he says, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one and the only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So here, authority and worship the next cycle, authority, and, and Jesus sets himself up and says, all right, what's the authority? God, he's due all. And so we see this over and over again. Owner, creator, he's the one who is due our worship. Every single part of who we are in every single aspect. And this is really the holistic view. And then, on the, on the worship part, all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. And then Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And again, the same thing, holistic. How am I engaging God in the different areas? And that's why we go through journeys like, like the, the fall launches where we talk about, we take several weeks and we talk about all of these areas. And, and, and there has to be a balance to that. There has to be an intertwining of these things where I say, I'm going to be in submission to God. He is my authority. And so every single part of who I am is just going to be crossing and, and meeting him and engaging him. 
Jesus goes on in the last little section. He's teaching the people in the temple and he says, why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the Son of God? For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David calls himself the Messiah, called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? And the crowd listened to him in great delight. He begins to talk about these things and and what he's setting himself up in the area of authority is that he is the king. This is where he says, I'm the Messiah. I come from the kingly line of David, the the kingdom that shall have no end, the lion of the tribe of Judah. I am the one who is the supreme ruler. That's who I am. And so then on on the worship part, this is, he says, David, the one you look to, David called me Lord. And we know that he was, he was what? He was a man after God's own heart. He said, God, I want everything that you have for me. I am not going to settle for anything less. I'm going to be undignified. We have pictures of David dancing in, in his underwear in the streets. You know, he says, I am going to worship God with everything. I'm going for broke. I'm all, I'm all in. He paints us this picture again of worship and authority. Finishes up as he's sitting there and he's just kind of observing the things that are going on in the temple again. And he sees the Pharisees. He sees the religious rulers. He sees people come and go and they begin to give their tithes and their offerings. In verse 41, he sat down near the collection box in the temple and he watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts, and then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Authority is due all of it. Authority, we have this picture of, all right, I'm, I'm the definer of truth. I'm the one who's due everything, even your very livelihood. And so the widow comes and she says, well, this is all I've got. I don't have a lot. This is, this is what's going to buy me bread. This is what is going to give me sus- sustenance. This is literally Jesus is saying, this is what is going to put me in need. This is going to put me in a place of dependence upon God for my provision. So what we have here is we have this picture and and everywhere that worship and authority meet, we have an opportunity. Everywhere that worship and authority meet, we have an opportunity like the people in, in Hebrews to exercise faith. And so we have these points. Here we are. We're at the, the crossroads. And we come and, all right, my, my job isn't going well. They tell me that I'm next in line to be cut because of budget cuts. What am I going to do? I'm the, I'm the breadwinner of my family. How am I going to supply? God, God, what are you going to do? God, where are you going to meet me? God, you're the authority. God, come on. And God says, well, this is a, there's a two-way street here. What is, it, what is it that you're doing here with, with worship? 
Are you, com- are you complaining? Are, are, you, are you drawing near to me? Are you depending upon me? Are you in continuous communion and fellowship with me that you, that you sit in that place like the widow and you say, I will gladly be in need of my God. I will gladly put myself in a place of dependence. I will bl- gladly be like those, those people in, in Hebrews who said, I will not turn my back on God. I will not forsake my God, but put me to the test. Put me to the test. Let me, let me, let me just die for God. And it's easy for us to sometimes say, yeah, I'd die for God. I'd take a bullet for God. And yet what he asks us to do is to die in our life. Die in the daily aspects. Everywhere that, that our authority and worship get challenged. And there we are. And all right, what am I supposed to do? What's my purpose in life? Where am I going? Here I am in, in a major in school. Here I am in a career direction. And all of a sudden, doors just seem to be shutting over and over again. And it gets hard. And, and I, am I going for, for the money? Or am I going to, to fulfill who I am, who God has designed me to be? Am I using my gifts and my talents and my strengths? Or am I, well, I'm going to choose the easy life. This is going to give me security. If I can just make this amount each year. We have those tests, authority and worship, the opportunity to sell out. We go on with life and we get to these crossroads and we go, all right, here we are, we're, we're building a family and, and what are we going to do? Are we going to be in control? Or are we going to believe that, that God is the one who opens and closes the womb? And this is one that my wife and I, we just had to make an issue of faith. We knew that God had told us, wait five years before you have kids. And two and a half years into our marriage, we truly and honestly believed that in the birth control methods that we were using, that we were dishonoring God. That we were not living in faith and that we were in control of a situation. And we said, God, we believe that your word is true. We both feel convinced that this is where you want us to go and this is where you're leading, but but we have to let you be in control. And we went another two and a half years without using any kind of methods. And we got pregnant one month before our five-year anniversary. The day that my father went to go to his final brain surgery, we found out that we were pregnant. And 10 days later, he died. And God gave us this amazing gift of the promise of life in the shadow of the valley of death. And we couldn't have timed that out. We couldn't have planned it to be any better than that. But it forced us to go, all right, God, what what does this mean to honor you with our faith? Now we sit on the other side of it, <laughs> seven and a half years later, with two children and another one on the way and going, all right, <laughs> have we had enough? <laughs> God, what's your plan? We get tested again to be in control. We get tested again to take those reins. And, oh, no. God, you're the one who's in authority. God, this is worship to you. This is hard work. What do, you, what do you want from us? We can't do this, but guess what? We're going to put ourselves in a place where, where you can do it. We're going to let ourselves be in a place where we are dependent upon you. 
I love the way David put it. He said, God, don't let me be rich. Don't let me be poor. Just give me what I need. Just let me be dependent upon you every moment of every day. And in the same time, he says, I will not give my God anything that does not cost me. What a beautiful picture of submission to the authority of God. What a beautiful picture of worship. And that's the things that we see in the life of Christ. Those are the challenges for us. As we answer these questions, who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? And I hope that you take some time to, to ask yourself, all right, if God puts me in this situation where he sends me like one of those servants to be beaten, beaten up in my job, if he sends me like, like one of his servants to be killed, crucified and blasphemed and slandered behind my back, because of my good works and because of my service to him. Am I okay with that? Do I do that willingly? Do I do that as worship? And I believe that when we do, then we find a depth of life that is unattainable and unexperienced in any other realm. We find the ability to rejoice in the suffering. We find the ability to have joy in the midst of pain, in the midst of a trial. That's something that only is experienced through the power of the resurrection and our hope in Jesus. It doesn't come in any other way. Pray with me and we're going to have some more time of worship. Lord, we see clearly in your word as, as Mark just lays out this mosaic, these different snapshots, these different pictures. We see this this weaving of your authority, this, this need for us to depend upon you. Lord, each and every one of us have those places in our lives where, where our, our faith is challenged and, and where we, we question whether you are in control or whether we want to let you be in control. We have those times where the things that we're doing are just simply not a continuous flow of communion they're not a, a continuous flow of, of honoring you and honoring other people. Lord, we come to you needy. We come to you hopeful. We come to you expectant. We come to you and ask you to reveal to our hearts and to our minds the things that need to change. And we ask that you give us the courage and the boldness to implement those things, to come alongside of each other and speak truth into each other's lives, to come alongside of each other and, and walk through on a day-to-day -day basis these hard situations. Lord, we pray that you would give us a deep love for you and a deep love for the people that are in our community that you've asked us to walk with. We know that these things only happen through a hope and a resurrection and an engagement with your Holy Spirit. Lord, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen.